Story ten of Wounds in the Rain War Stories by Stephen Crane. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story ten War Memories Part one. But to get the real thing, cried Vernal, the war correspondent, it seems impossible. It is because war is neither magnificent nor squalid, it is simply life, and an expression of life can always evade us. We can never tell life, one to another, although sometimes we think we can. When I climbed aboard the dispatch boat at Key West, the mate told me irritably that as soon as we crossed the bar we would find ourselves monkey-climbing over heavy seas. It wasn't my fault, but he seemed to insinuate that it was all a result of my incapacity. There were four correspondents in the party. The leader of us came aboard with a huge bunch of bananas, which he hung like a chandelier in the centre of the tiny cabin. We made acquaintance over, around, and under this bunch of bananas, which really occupied the cabin as a soldier occupies a sentry-box. But the bunch did not become really aggressive until we were well at sea. Then it began to spar. With the first roll of the ship it launched its honest pounds at McGurdy, and knocked him wildly through the door to the deck-rail, where he hung, cursing hysterically. Without a moment's pause it made for me. I flung myself head-first into my bunk, and watched the demon sweep Brownlow into a corner and wedge his knee behind a sea-chest. Carrie gave a shrill cry and fled. The bunch of bananas swung to and fro, silent, determined, ferocious, looking for more men. It had cleared a space for itself. My comrades looked in at the door, calling upon me to grab the thing and hold it. I pointed out to them the security and comfort of my position. They were angry. Finally the mate came and lashed the thing, so that it could not prowl about the cabin and assault innocent war correspondents. You see, war, a bunch of bananas rampant because the ship rolled. In that early period of the war we were forced to continue our dreams, and we were all dreamers, envisioning the seas with dead grapples, ship and ship. Even the navy grew cynical. Officers on the bridge lifted their megaphones and told you, in resigned voices, that they were out of ice, onions, and eggs. At other times they would shoot quite casually at us with six-pounders. This industry usually progressed in the night, but it sometimes happened in the day. There was never any resentment on our side, although at moments there was some nervousness. They were impressively quick with their lanyards. Our means of replying to signals were correspondingly slow. They gave you opportunity to say, Heaven guard me, and then they shot. But we recognized the propriety of it. Everything was correct, save the war, which lagged and lagged and lagged. It did not play. It was not a gory giant. It was a bunch of bananas swung in the middle of the cabin. Once we had the honor of being rammed at midnight by the USS Machias. In fact, the exceeding industry of the naval commanders of the Cuban blockading fleet caused a certain liveliness to at times penetrate our mediocre existence. We were all greatly entertained over an immediate prospect of being either killed by rapid-fire guns, 
cut in half by the ram, or merely drowned. But even our great longing for diversion could not cause us to ever again go near the Machias on a dark night. We had sailed from Key West on a mission that had nothing to do with the coast of Cuba, and steaming due east and some thirty-five miles from the Cuban land, we did not think we were liable to an affair with any of the fierce American cruisers. Suddenly a familiar signal of red and white lights flashed like a brooch of jewels on the pall that covered the sea. It was far away and tiny, but we knew all about it. It was the electric question of an American warship, and it demanded a swift answer in kind. The man behind the gun. What about the man in front of the gun? The warship signals vanished, and the sea presented nothing but a smoky black stretch, lit with the hissing white tops of the flying waves. A thin line of flame swept from a gun. Thereafter followed one of those silences which had become so peculiarly instructive to the blockade-runner. Somewhere in the darkness we knew that a slate-colored cruiser, red below the water-line, and with a gold scroll on her bows, was flying over the waves toward us, while upon the dark decks the men stood at general quarters in silence about the long thin guns, and it was the law of life and death that we should make true answer in about the twelfth part of a second. Now I shall with regret disclose a certain dreadful secret of the dispatch-boat service. Our signals, far from being electric, were two lanterns which we kept in a tub and covered with a tarpaulin. The tub was placed just forward of the pilot-house, and when we were accosted at night it was everybody's duty to scramble wildly for the tub and grab out the lanterns and wave them. It amounted to a slowness of speech. I remember a story of an army sentry who, upon hearing a noise in his front one dark night, called his usual sharp query, Halt! Who's there? Halt! Or I'll fire! And getting no immediate response, he fired, even as he had said, killing a man with a hair lip who, unfortunately, could not arrange his vocal machinery to reply in season. We were something like a boat with a hair lip, and sometimes it was very trying to the nerves. The pause was long. Then a voice spoke from the sea through a megaphone. It was faint, but clear. What ship is that? No one hesitated over his answer in cases of this kind. Everybody was desirous of imparting fullest information. There was another pause. Then out of the darkness flew an American cruiser, silent as death, handled as ferociously as if the devil commanded her. Again the little voice hailed from the bridge, "'What ship is that?' Evidently the reply to the first hail had been misunderstood or not heard. This time the voice rang with menace, menace of immediate and certain destruction, and the last word was intoned savagely and strangely across the windy darkness, as if the officer would explain that the cruiser was after either fools or the common enemy. The yells in return did not stop her. She was hurling herself forward to ram us amidships, and the people on the little three friends looked at a tall, swooping bow, and it was keener than any knife that has ever been made. 
As the cruiser lunged, every man imagined the gallant and famous but frail three friends cut into two parts as neatly as if she had been cheese. But there was a sheer, and a hard sheer, to starboard, and down upon our quarter swung a monstrous thing larger than any ship in the world, the USS Mejias. She had a freeboard of about three hundred feet, and the top of her funnel was out of sight in the clouds like an alp. I shouldn't wonder that at the top of that funnel there was a region of perpetual snow. And at a range which swiftly narrowed to nothing, every gun in her port battery swung deliberately into aim. It was closer, more deliciously intimate than a duel across a handkerchief. We all had an opportunity of looking miles down the muzzles of this festive artillery before came the collision. Then the Machias reeled her steel shoulder against the wooden side of the three friends, and up went a roar as if a vast shingle roof had fallen. The poor little tug dipped as if she meant to pass under the warship, staggered and finally righted, trembling from head to foot. The cries of the splintered timbers ceased. The men on the tug gazed at each other with white faces shining faintly in the darkness. The Machias backed away even as the three friends drew slowly ahead, and again we were alone with the piping of the wind and the slash of the gale-driven water. Later, from some hidden part of the sea, the bullish eye of a searchlight looked at us, and the widening white rays bathed us in the glare. There was another hail. "'Hello there, three friends!' "'My eye, sir!' "'Are you injured?' Our first mate had taken a lantern and was studying the side of the tug, and we held our breath for his answer. I was sure that he was going to say that we were sinking. Surely there could be no other ending to this terrific bloodthirsty assault. But the first mate said, No, sir. Instantly the glare of the searchlight was gone. The Machias was gone. The incident was closed. I was dining once on board the flagship, the New York, armored cruiser. It was the junior officer's mess, and when the coffee came, a young ensign went to the piano and began to bang out a popular tune. It was a cheerful scene, and it resembled only a cheerful scene. Suddenly we heard the whistle of the boatswain's mate, and directly above us, it seemed, a voice, hoarse as that of a sea-lion, bellowed a command, "'Man the port battery!' In a moment the table was vacant. The popular tunes ceased in a jangle. On the quarter-deck assembled a group of officers, spectators. The quiet evening sea, lit with faint red lights, went peacefully to the feet of a verdant shore. One could hear the far-away measured tumbling of surf upon a reef. Only this sound pulsed in the air. The great grey cruiser was as still as the earth, the sea, and the sky. Then they let off a four-inch gun directly under my feet. I thought it turned me a back somersault. That was the effect upon my mind, but it appears I did not move. The shell went carousing off to the Cuban shore, and from the vegetation there spurted a cloud of dust. Some of the officers on the quarter-deck laughed. Through their glasses they had seen a Spanish column of cavalry much agitated by the appearance of this shell among them. 
As far as I was concerned, there was nothing but the spurt of dust from the side of a long suffering island. When I returned to my coffee, I found that most of the young officers had also returned. Japanese boys were bringing liquors. The piano's clattering of the popular air was often interrupted by the boom of a four-inch gun. A bunch of bananas. One day our dispatch boat found the shores of Guantanamo Bay flowing past on either side. It was at nightfall, and on the eastward point a small village was burning, and it happened that a fiery light was thrown upon some palm-trees, so that it made them into enormous crimson feathers. The water was the color of blue steel, the Cuban woods were somber, high shivered the gory feathers. The last boatloads of the Marine Battalion were pulling for the beach. The Marine officers gave me generous hospitality to the camp on the hill. That night there was an alarm, and amid a stern calling of orders and a rushing of men, I wandered in search of some other man who had no occupation. It turned out to be the young assistant surgeon, Gibbs. We foregathered in the center of a square of six companies of Marines. There was no firing. We thought it rather comic. The next night there was an alarm. There was some firing. We lay on our bellies. It was no longer comic. On the third night the alarm came early. I went in search of Gibbs, but I soon gave over an active search for the more congenial occupation of lying flat and feeling the hot hiss of the bullets trying to cut my hair. For a moment I was no longer a cynic. I was a child who, in a fit of ignorance, had jumped into the vat of war. I heard somebody dying near me. He was dying hard, hard. It took him a long time to die. He breathed as all noble machinery breathes when it is making its gallant strife against breaking, breaking. But he was going to break. He was going to break. It seemed to me this breathing, the noise of a heroic pump which strives to subdue a mud which comes upon it in tons. The darkness was impenetrable. The man was lying in some depression within seven feet of me. Every wave, vibration of his anguish beat upon my senses. He was long past groaning. There was only the bitter strife for air which pulsed out into the night in a clear, penetrating whistle with intervals of terrible silence in which I held my own breath in the common unconscious aspiration to help. I thought this man would never die. I wanted him to die, and ultimately he died. At the moment the adjutant came bustling along, erect amid the spitting bullets. I knew him by his voice. "'Where's the doctor? There's some wounded men over there. Where's the doctor?' A man answered briskly, "'Just died this minute, sir.' It was as if he had said, "'Just gone around the corner this minute, sir.' Despite the horror of this night's business, the man's mind was somehow influenced by the coincidence of the adjutant's calling aloud for the doctor within a few seconds of the doctor's death. It, uh, what shall I say, it interested him, this coincidence. The day broke by inches with an obvious and maddening reluctance. 
from some unfathomable source i procured an opinion that my friend was not dead at all the wild and quivering darkness had caused me to misinterpret a few shouted words at length the land brightened in a violent atmosphere the perfect dawning of a tropic day and in this light i saw a clump of men near me at first i thought they were all dead then i thought they were all asleep the truth was that a group of wan-faced exhausted men had gone to sleep about gibbs's body so closely and in such abandoned attitudes that one's eye could not pick the living from the dead until one saw that a certain head had beneath it a great dark pool in the afternoon a lot of men went bathing and in the midst of this festivity firing was resumed it was funny to see the men come scampering out of the water grab at their rifles and go into action attired in naught but their cartridge belts the attack of the spaniards had interrupted in some degree the services over the graves of gibbs and some others i remember payne came ashore with a bottle of whisky which i took from him violently my faithful shooting-boots began to hurt me, and I went to the beach and poulticed my feet in wet clay, sitting on the little rickety pier near where the corrugated iron cable-station showed how the shells slivered through it. Some marines, desirous of mementos, were poking with sticks in the smoking ruins of the hamlet. Down in the shallow water crabs were meandering among the weeds, and little fishes moved slowly in schools. The next day we went shooting. It was exactly like quail-shooting, I'll tell you. These gorillas who so cursed our lives had a well some five miles away, and it was the only water supply within about twelve miles of the marine camp. It was decided that it would be correct to go forth and destroy the well. Captain Elliot, of C Company, was to take his men with Captain Spicer's Company, D, out to the well, beat the enemy away, and destroy everything. He was to start at the next daybreak. He asked me if I cared to go, and of course I accepted with glee. But all that night I was afraid, bitterly afraid. The moon was very bright, shedding a magnificent radiance upon the trenches. I watched the men of C and D companies lying so tranquilly, some snoring, confound them, whereas I was certain that I could never sleep with the weight of a coming battle upon my mind, a battle in which the poor life of a war correspondent might easily be taken by a careless enemy. But if I was frightened, I was also very cold. It was a chill night, and I wanted a heavy topcoat almost as much as I wanted a certificate of immunity from rifle bullets. These two feelings were of equal importance to my mind. They were twins. Elliot came and flung a tent-fly over Lieutenant Banyan and me as we lay on the ground back of the men. Then I was no longer cold, but I was still afraid, for tent-flies cannot mend a fear. In the morning I wished for some mild attack of disease, something that would incapacitate me for the business of going out gratuitously to be bombarded. But I was in an awkwardly healthy state, and so I must needs smile and look pleased with my prospects. 
we were to be guided by fifty Cubans, and I gave up all dreams of a postponement when I saw them shambling off in a single file through the cactus. We followed presently. Where are you people going to? Don't know, Jim. Well, good luck to you boys. This was the world's lazy inquiry and conventional godspeed. Then the mysterious wilderness swallowed us. The men were silent because they were ordered to be silent, but whatever faces I could observe were marked with a look of serious meditation. As they trudged slowly in single file, they were reflecting upon what? I don't know, but at length we came to ground more open. The sea appeared on our right, and we saw the gunboat Dolphin steaming along in a line parallel to ours. I was as glad to see her as if she had called out my name. The trail wound about the bases of some high, bare spurs. If the Spaniards had occupied them, I don't see how we could have gone further. But upon them were only the dove-voiced guerrilla scouts, calling back into the hills the news of our approach. The effect of sound is, of course, relative. I am sure I have never heard such a horrible sound as the beautiful cooing of the wood-dove when I was certain that it came from the yellow throat of a gorilla. Elliot sent Lieutenant Lucas with his platoon to ascend the hills and cover our advance by the trail. We halted and watched them climb, a long black streak of men in the vivid sunshine of the hillside. We did not know how tall were these hills until we saw Lucas and his men on top, and they were no larger than specks. We marched on until, at last, we heard, it seemed in the sky, the sputter of firing. This devil's dance was begun. The proper strategic movement to cover the crisis seemed to me to be to run away home and swear I had never started on this expedition. But Elliot yelled, Now, men, straight up this hill! The men charged up against the cactus, and because I cared for the opinion of others, I found myself tagging along, close at Elliot's heels. I don't know how I got up that hill, but I think it was because I was afraid to be left behind. The immediate rear did not look safe. The crowd of strong young marines afforded the only spectacle of provisional security. So I tagged along at Elliot's heels. The hill was as steep as a Swiss roof. From it sprang out great pillars of cactus, and the human instinct was to assist oneself in the ascent by grasping cactus with one's hands. I remember the watch I had to keep upon this human instinct, even when the sound of the bullets was attracting my nervous attention. However, the attractive thing to my sense at the time was the fact that every man of the Marines was also climbing away like mad. It was one thing for Elliot, Spicer, Neville, Shaw, and Banyan. It was another thing for me. But what in the devil was it to the men? Not the same thing, surely. It was perfectly easy for any Marine to get overcome by the burning heat and, lying down, bequeath the work and the danger to his comrades. The fine thing about the men is that you can't explain them. I mean, when you take them collectively. They do a thing, and afterward you find that they have done it because they have done it. However, when Elliot arrived at the top of the ridge, myself and many other men were with him. But there was no battle scene. 
Off on another ridge we could see Lucas's men and the Cubans peppering away into a valley. The bullets about our ears were really intended to lodge in them. We went over there. I walked along the firing line and looked at the men. I kept somewhat on what I shall call the lee side of the ridge. Why? Because I was afraid of being shot. No other reason. Most of the men, as they lay flat, shooting, looked contented, almost happy. They were pleased, these men, at the situation. I don't know. I cannot imagine. But they were pleased, at any rate. I wasn't pleased. I was picturing defeat. I was saying to myself, now if the enemy should suddenly do so-and-so, or so-and-so, why, what would become of me? During these first few moments I did not see the Spanish position, because I was afraid to look at it. Bullets were hissing and spitting over the crest of the hill in such showers as to make observation to be a task for a brave man. No, now, look here. Why the deuce should I have stuck my head up, eh? Why? Well, at any rate, I didn't, until it seemed to be a far less thing than most of the men were doing, as if they liked it. Then I saw nothing. At least it was only the bottom of a small valley. In this valley there was a thicket, a big thicket, and this thicket seemed to be crowded with a mysterious class of persons who were evidently trying to kill us. Our enemies? Yes, perhaps. I suppose so. Leave that to the people in the streets at home. They know and cry against the public enemy, but when men go into actual battle, not one in a thousand concerns himself with an animus against the men who face him. The great desire is to beat them, beat them whoever they are, as a matter, first of personal safety, second of personal glory. It is always safest to make the other chap quickly run away, and as he runs away one feels as one tries to hit him in the back and knock him sprawling that he must be a very good and sensible fellow. But these people apparently did not mean to run away. They clung to their thicket, and amid the roar of the firing one could sometimes hear their wild yells of insult and defiance. They were actually the most obstinate, headstrong, mulish people that you could ever imagine. The dolphin was throwing shells into their immediate vicinity, and the fire from the marines and Cubans was very rapid and heavy. But still those incomprehensible mortals remained in their thicket. The scene on the top of the ridge was very wild, but there was only one truly romantic figure. This was a Cuban officer who held in one hand a great glittering machete, and in the other a cocked revolver. He posed like a statue of victory. Afterwards he confessed to me that he alone had been responsible for the winning of the fight. But outside of this splendid person it was simply a picture of men at work, men terribly hard at work red-faced, sweating, gasping toilers. A Cuban negro soldier was shot through the heart, and one man took the body on his back, and another took it by its feet, and trundled away toward the rear, looking precisely like a wheelbarrow. A man in C Company was shot through the ankle, and he sat behind the line nursing his wound. Apparently he was pleased with it. It seemed to suit him. I don't know why 
but beside him sat a comrade with a face drawn, solemn, and responsible, like that of a New England spinster at the bedside of a sick child. The fight banged away with a roar like a forest fire. Suddenly a marine wriggled out of the firing line and came frantically to me. "'Say, young feller, I'll give you five dollars for a drink of whiskey.' He tried to force into my hand a gold piece. "'Go to the devil,' said I, deeply scandalized. "'Besides, I haven't got any whiskey.' "'No, but look here,' he beseeched me. "'If I don't get a drink, I'll die, and I'll give you five dollars for it, honest I will.' I finally tried to escape from him by walking away, but he followed at my heels, importuning me with all the exasperating persistence of a professional beggar, and trying to force this ghastly gold-piece into my hand. I could not shake him off, and amid that clatter of furious fighting I found myself intensely embarrassed, and glancing fearfully this way and that way to make sure that people did not see me, the villain and his gold. In vain I assured him that if I had any whiskey I should place it at his disposal. He could not be turned away. I thought of the European expedient in such a crisis, to jump in a cab, but unfortunately— in the meantime, I had given up my occupation of tagging at Captain Elliot's heels, because his business required that he should go into places of great danger. But from time to time I was under his attention. Once he turned to me and said, "'Mr. Vernal, will you go and satisfy yourself who those people are?' Some men had appeared on a hill about six hundred yards from our left flank. "'Yes, sir,' cried I, with, I assure you, the finest alacrity and cheerfulness, and my tone proved to me that I had inherited histrionic abilities. This tone was, of course, a black lie, but I went off briskly, and was as jaunty as a real soldier, while all the time my heart was in my boots, and I was cursing the day that saw me landed on the shores of the tragic isle. If the men on the distant hill had been guerrillas, my future might have been seriously jeopardized. But I had not gone far toward them when I was able to recognize the uniforms of the Marine Corps. Whereupon I scampered back to the firing line, and with the same alacrity and cheerfulness reported my information. I mentioned to you that I was afraid, because there were about me that day many men who did not seem to be afraid at all men with quiet, composed faces, who went about this business as if they proceeded from a sense of habit. They were not old soldiers, they were mainly recruits, but many of them betrayed all the emotion, and merely the emotion, that one sees in the face of a man earnestly at work. I don't know how long the action lasted. I remember deciding in my own mind that the Spaniards stood forty minutes. This was a mere arbitrary decision, based on nothing, but at any rate we finally arrived at the satisfactory moment when the enemy began to run away. I shall never forget how my courage increased. And then began the great bird-shooting. From the far side of the thicket arose an easy slope covered with plum-coloured bush. The Spaniards broke in coveys of from six to fifteen men, or birds, and swarmed up this slope. The marines on our ridge then had some fine open field shooting. 
no charge could be made because the shells from the _Dolphin_ were helping the Spaniards to evacuate the thicket, so the marines had to be content with this extraordinary paraphrase of a kind of sport. It was strangely like the original. The shells from the _Dolphin_ were the dogs dogs who went in and stirred out the game. The marines were suddenly gentlemen in leggings, alive with the sharp instinct which marks the hunter. The Spaniards were the birds. Yes, they were the birds, but I doubt if they would sympathize with my metaphors. We destroyed their camp, and when the tiled roof of a burning house fell with a crash, it was so like the crash of a strong volley of musketry that we all turned with a start fearing that we would have to fight again on that same day. And this struck me at least as being an impossible thing. They gave us water from the dolphin, and we filled our canteens. None of the men were particularly jubilant. They did not altogether appreciate their victory. They were occupied in being glad that the fight was over. I discovered, to my amazement, that we were on the summit of a hill so high that our released eyes seemed to sweep over half the world. The vast stretch of sea, shimmering like a fragile blue silk in the breeze, lost itself ultimately in an indefinite pink haze, while in the other direction, ridge after ridge, ridge after ridge, rolled brown and arid into the north. The battle had been fought high in the air, where the rain-clouds might have been. That is why everybody's face was the color of beetroot, and men lay on the ground and only swore feebly when the cactus spurs sank into them. Finally we started for camp. Leaving our wounded, our cactus pincushions, and our heat-prostrated men on board the dolphin, I did not see that the men were elate or even grinning with satisfaction. They seemed only anxious to get to food and rest. And yet it was plain that Elliot and his men had performed a service that would prove invaluable to the security and comfort of the entire battalion. They had driven the guerrillas to take a road along which they would have to proceed for fifteen miles before they could get as much water as would wet the point of a pin. And by the destruction of a well at the scene of the fight, Elliot made an arid zone almost twenty miles wide between the enemy and the base camp. In Cuba this is the best of protections. However, a cup of coffee. Time enough to think of a brilliant success after one had had a cup of coffee. The long line plodded wearily through the dusky jungle, which was never again to be alive with ambushes. It was dark when we stumbled into camp, and I was sad with an ungovernable sadness, because I was too tired to remember where I had left my kit. But some of my colleagues were waiting on the beach, and they put me on a dispatch boat to take my news to a Jamaica cable station. The appearance of this dispatch boat struck me with wonder. It was reminiscent of something with which I had been familiar in early years. I looked with dull surprise at three men of the engine-room force, who sat aft on some bags of coal, smoking their pipes, and talking as if there had never been any battles fought anywhere. The sudden clang of the gong made me start and listen eagerly, as if I would be asking, what was that? The clunking of the screw affected me also, but I seemed to relate it to a former and pleasing experience. 
One of the correspondents on board immediately began to tell me of the chief engineer, who, he said, was a comic old character. I was taken to see this marvel, who presented itself as a grey bearded man with an oil can who had the cynical, malicious, egotistic eye of proclaimed and admired ignorance. I looked dazedly at the venerable impostor. What had he to do with the battles, the humming click of the locks, the odour of burnt cotton, the bullets, the firing? My friend told the scoundrel that I was just returned from the afternoon's action. He said, That's so? and looked at me with a smile, faintly, faintly derisive. You see, I had just come out of my life's most fiery time, and that old devil looked at me with that smile. What colossal conceit! The four times damned doddering old head mechanic of a derelict junk-shop! The whole trouble lay in the fact that I had not shouted out with a mingled awe and joy as he stood there in his wisdom and experience, with all his ancient saws and homemade epigrams ready to fire. My friend took me to the cabin. What a squalid hole! My heart sank. The reward after the labor should have been a great airy chamber, a gigantic four-poster, iced melons, grilled birds, wine, and the delighted attendance of my friends. When I had finished my cablegram, I retired to a little shelf of a berth which reeked of oil, while the blankets had soaked recently with sea-water. The vessel heeled to leeward in spasmodic attempts to hurl me out, and I resisted with the last of my strength. The infamous pettiness of it all! I thought the night would never end. But never mind, I said to myself at last, to-morrow at Fort Antonio I shall have a great bath and fine raiment, and I shall dine grandly, and there will be a lager beer on ice, and there will be attendance to run when I touch a bell and I shall catch every interested romantist in the town and spin him the story of the fight at Cuso. We reached Fort Antonio, and I fled from the cable office to the hotel. I procured the bath, and as I donned whatever fine raiment I had foraged, I recalled the boy and pompously told him of a dinner, a real dinner, with furbelows and complications, and yet with a basis of sincerity. He looked at me, calf-like, for a moment, and then he went away. After a long interval, the manager himself appeared and asked me some questions, which led me to see that he thought I had attempted to undermine and disintegrate the intellect of the boy by the elocution of Arabic incantations. Well, never mind. In the end, the manager of the hotel elicited from me that great cry, that cry which during the war rang piteously from thousands of throats, that last grand cry of anguish and despair. Well, then, in the name of God, can I have a cold bottle of beer? Well, you see to what war brings men. War is death, and a plague of the lack of small things, and toil. Nor did I catch my sentimentalists and pour forth my tale to them and thrill, appall, and fascinate them. However, they did feel an interest in me, for I heard a lady at the hotel ask, Who is that chap in the very dirty jack-boots? 
So you see that whereas you can be very much frightened upon going into action, you can also be greatly annoyed after you have come out. End of section 15